Welcome to the Yanks are Coming Soccer Show. My name is Carter Krishnire. Today I got to sit down with Caitlin Murray, who has written this fantastic book, The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. And Caitlin, of course, is one of the leading uh, soccer journalists in the country uh, covering uh, the women's game from Portland and will be in France for the World Cup all month. Here's my interview with Caitlin. So, Caitlin, one of the most interesting aspects of your book, I think, for a lot of fans of the game, long-term fans of the game in this country, were the struggles that the women had to go through uh, in the 80s and 90s, one, to get recognized, and two, to really get uh, the Federation and everyone on the outside serious about women's soccer. Yeah, I mean, that was something I really actually didn't know that much about when I started working on my book. I mean... The equal pay lawsuit has brought those issues to the forefront in 2016 when five of the players sued U.S. Soccer. Uh, that sort of started a discussion that hadn't really been happening publicly. And what I learned is that behind the scenes, this has been happening since the team's inception. It's sort of part of the team's DNA. Um, you know, back in the day, they were getting $10 a day. They made no money. Many players had to work full-time jobs that they would then quit to join training camps and then they'd have to get a new job after the training camp. So the players sacrificed a lot. And um, one of my favorite uh, scenes in the book is actually when Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy, they're sitting in a conference room with the president of U.S. Soccer and they're sort of telling him off and telling him that they're never going to play soccer for the U.S. again if the Federation doesn't treat them better. And those were the stories we didn't really know about at the time they weren't covered but now I think in retrospect we kind of see that what's going on now with the discussion of equal pay is just a continuation of what has been happening throughout the team's entire history so it was such a labor of love for some of those early pioneers some of the great women's players we've talked about the Mia Hams and Julie Foudy's the Michelle Akers Brandy Chastain's etc uh what was it about this sport? Uh, was it the opportunity that afforded them? Was it the team uh, aspect of it? What was it that attracted uh, such women of, of such high caliber, not just as athletes, but as people to, to the sport and to this national team? Well, I think, I mean, it's hard to talk about the U.S. women's national team and the success that is had without Title IX. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the best players that the team has had, I mean, really, at this point, almost all of them, except for, you know, Lindsey Horan and Mallory Pugh, are players that have come out of the college system. And, you know, Mia Hamm did join the team when she, uh, she first was on the radar when she was in high school, but it's because Anson Dorrance was scouting her for UNC. So the college game and the national team have sort of been hand in hand in their evolution. And I mean, Title IX was a game changer. It essentially meant that if you were a young girl growing up in the United States, you had a really good reason to take a sport seriously because you could get a scholarship that was worth, you know, maybe around $300,000. Um, and then when you got to college, you were playing in these environments that were really professional and uh, competitive. So, um, I think you have to thank Title IX for where the U.S. Women's National Team has ended up. The 99ers and 
their great triumph. And of course, let's not forget the U.S. won the World Cup, the first Women's World Cup in 1991 as well. That's sometimes forgotten. You talk about it in your, yeah, you talk about it in your book. They, they athletes to, to cultural icons, uh, that entire team, and in particular, you know, some of the players we mentioned, the, the Julie Foudy's and the Mia Hams, the Brandy Chastains, etc. That transition, uh, how, how difficult in, in your, your, your background and in your, your talking to all these former players and, and, and coaches and administrators, how, how difficult was that transition? Well, I think it's, I mean, really, it was something that the players, I guess, had pushed for in a way. Like, I guess people don't really know that before the 1999 Women's World Cup, which was this huge event, set attendance records, sent TV records, uh, before that event, the players were going out and campaigning and trying to get people to show up to the games. They felt a huge responsibility for making sure it was a huge success. So then when it was, when it was essentially the biggest story of the summer in 1999, I think it was a bit jarring for the players. They talked to me about how weird it was that there was a period of time, uh, Tiffany Milbert said, where she knew that whenever she left her house, multiple people were going to recognize her and say something to her. And it was that way for a while after the 1999 Women's World Cup. So it was definitely uh, different when you think about the fact that Prior to that point, the team was playing in high school stadiums, and they weren't even selling out those games. Um, they, you know, they weren't famous. They weren't being offered endorsement deals, largely. Um, I mean, 1999 was definitely a turning point, and um, I think it was an evolution in women's soccer where. Uh, I don't think the United States really knew about soccer, knew about women's soccer up until 1999. I mean, one year before that, the men competed in the 1998 World Cup and came in last place. They were sort of a laughing stock, and I don't think it did that much to get Americans super excited about soccer. So 1999 was really a big turning point. So throughout the 2000s, uh, well, I guess I should say through the decade from 2000 to 2009, we had two startup women's professional leagues, which gave uh, the national team players and players who were kind of on the fringe of the national team, right, uh, to, uh, and those who had played in college and uh, after college had, had quit soccer in the past, uh, the opportunity to play first WUSA and then WPS. Um, both leagues ultimately failed, but... Um, Caitlin, talk a little bit about the professional opportunity because beyond the national team, and now obviously we've got NWSL now in its, uh, I'm counting, seventh season, uh, we, we've got um, a, a stable professional, well, somewhat stable professional league, but the, op the professional opportunity for the women, which was not there like it was in the men's game uh, prior to uh, the success of that 99 World Cup. Yeah, I mean, that was seen as sort of the most important piece. Uh, that was something that the players talked about a lot, that, you know, the, the World Cup and the crowds and the attention was great, but that's going to go away. The World Cup is every four years. Um, you know, the Olympics is every four years. Uh, they needed a league to be professionals, to be able to actually play soccer day in and day out. And I mean, something that we saw over the years that I talk about in my book is that it was hard being a 
you know, a quote unquote professional soccer player and just playing for the U.S. Soccer Federation. In 2005, um, after Mia Hamm retired and some of the stars of the team went away, uh, U.S. Soccer wanted to essentially have the team go dark and not play any games. And the players were really at the whims of the Federation and how much the Federation wanted them to compete. And it turned into this huge fight um, over whether or not U.S. soccer could not have the women play any games that year to the, to the point where the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee had to get involved and step in and tell U.S. soccer that they couldn't do that, that this was, you know, essentially it was discrimination against the women's team. Um, so without a league, that is how things like that happened. Um, so the league was really considered sort of the most important piece. And, um, I mean, that's why, you know, the leagues failed twice and they keep coming back because it's hard to be a professional soccer player and not have a club team to play for. And for a lot of players going overseas just wasn't really an option necessarily. They, you know, had other things going on in their life, or maybe they just didn't want to go overseas. Um, so yeah, the league was really seen as sort of like the vital, you know, final piece for these players. Yeah, the um, the mid-2000s, obviously, there was that controversy you allude to, which led to the formation of WPS. I mean, there was a direct correlation. Um, and also the, the 2007 World Cup, which was maybe the low moment for the U.S. in, in, in World Cup history. <laughs> we don't need to get too deep into that. Uh, but now as we, we transition to this decade and a new team, world champions in 2015, runners-up in 2011, obviously three Olympic gold medals scattered in there, um, there seems to be an evolution in the players. You mentioned Lindsay Horan earlier. You watch her every week in Portland. She's the first player I can remember that 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 high level player, really, you know, elite player that skipped college completely and went and played overseas at a top club in Europe and came back this just completely incredible finished article. Is that something we're going to see more of from from what you're you're seeing uh, going forward? Yeah, Lindsey Horan is the first American woman to do that. And I think when that happened, I think, you know, people were talking about whether this is sort of a new blueprint. Um, I'm not sure, so sure. I mean, we see with Olivia Moultrie, the 13-year-old, she has uh, passed on a scholarship to UNC so she could go pro, even though she cannot play for a pro team, the NWSL is not going to let her play until she's 18. She can't go overseas, again, because she's a minor, and, you know, FIFA has rules about that. Um, so she's a pro because she signed a deal with Nike. Uh, it's it's something that I will be interested to see how much that increases. I mean, Tierna Davidson skipped her senior year at Stanford to go pro, essentially because I think Jill Ellis and the U.S. national team told her that was important for her to make uh, a spot on the World Cup roster. Uh, Mallory Pugh did it um, in 20. 20- 17, I think it was. Um, so it's it's still rare, really rare. And I think unless the rest of the world 
really steps up their game in terms of the academies and starts to surpass the U.S., I still think the college game is going to be incredibly important for the scouting and the development of players. I do think we are seeing in Europe and in some of these countries that already love soccer and you know, tend to love men's soccer. I do think we are seeing more investment on the women's side. We are seeing more academy systems, and that is going to put pressure on the U.S. at some point. Um, It'll be interesting to see sort of how U.S. soccer and the American soccer system responds to that, because I do think it's sort of an inevitable thing that at some point, Europe is going to start caring about women's soccer more, and they already have the academy infrastructure on the men's side. So once they do that on the women's side, we could start to see, you know, a time where the U.S. is no longer ranked number one and maybe not even number two or something, you know, on the world stage. Um, So I don't really see an immediate shift. I just think the opportunities still aren't there. The NWSL doesn't really pay – that much. And it is hard because of FIFA's rules um, for young players to go overseas. Um, But I do think we'll eventually see a shift. I'm just not so sure that it's right now. Yeah, and, and I have to remind our listeners, and I know I've done this before with Neil on this show, Morgan Bryan in 2014 was, for me, the outstanding college player, right, at UVA. And she transitioned right into being a really good World Cup player in 2015 and had a big part in the U.S. winning that World Cup. So uh, the college system is not broken as a means to, to develop players at, at all. So, uh, Caitlin, wanted to, to finish on this. Um, there's been a lot of interest in this World Cup 2019, and we're recording this just before you fly over to France. A lot of interest in this World Cup in Europe, more than I can remember. Even when the World Cup was in Germany in 2011, it wasn't quite like this. Uh, with the European media, maybe not covering it the way they would cover a men's uh, World Cup or a men's Euro, but um, not uh, throwing it on the back pages either of, of sports sections. I mean, it's, it's a serious competition. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the U.S.? Because obviously it's growing the stature of the women's game, but as you mentioned a few minutes ago, it's also elevating the level of what are potentially the most competitive countries uh, that the U.S. is going to have to face off with. Yeah, I mean, England's top flight league, Barclays just signed a multi-million dollar sponsorship with the Women's Super League. That is now going to allow 500,000 pounds in prize money. We are going to see that the quality of that league is going to get better. More players around the world are going to want to play in that league because the financial incentives are going to be greater. You know, Visa just signed a a seven-year deal with the European Federation to sponsor women's football over there. Um, We are seeing more investment in countries that – have already laid the groundwork of there being an insane amount of money in soccer. It's just always been in men's soccer. So once that starts shifting to women's soccer, that is going to put a lot of pressure on the U.S. where, let's be honest, the NWSL has not done a good job of bringing in sponsors. The NWSL, I, you know, it's a whole nother discussion, but there are some real concerns about the structure and, you know, whether the league has positioned itself to capitalize on this World Cup. But in Europe, I think they have really um, set themselves up to start capitalizing, and that is going to create more of a shift toward uh, women's soccer and 
the U.S. not being the given uh, powerhouse. You know, the U.S. just can't always be dominant if we're going to continue to see that kind of growth in Europe. You, you, you talk a lot about the previous controversies involving uh, the women's team and having to fight for any sense of equality. I mean, they're still not there, obviously, but uh, and, and we still have issues of, of uh, matches on turf, a disproportionate number of matches on turf, which the women have to play, among other issues. But um, the disputes in the 80s and 90s and then leading into the mid-2000s, which I think most of our listeners probably remember that particular uh, dispute when the Federation wanted the women to go dark, essentially. Actually, um, for uh, a period of time in terms of, of, of friendlies, etc., in between tournaments. The, the, the big um, question I have about you know, some, of, some of your research and your conversations were, a lot of the women feel like they uh, had this heavy burden that this was a cause that extended beyond them. It wasn't just about them. It wasn't just about their U.S. women's national team, but it was about equality in general in this sport, uh, which is a long way off from equality, and in society in general. Absolutely, 100%. I think if the players had gone into some of these situations thinking that it was about them, that they wouldn't have achieved any of the things that they achieved because what we saw over the years and what I talk about a lot in my book was that the players banded together and they only achieved these, you know, these steps forward, this progress by working together and sort of seeing it as bigger than any one player, any one team. It was really about the sport as a whole. Um, something I talk about, uh, in my book is that U.S. soccer, uh, when there was a dispute going on, U.S. soccer said, okay, we're just going to send a youth team to this. Uh, there, was, there was some sort of tournament in Australia, and the players were in a fight with U.S. soccer, so the federation said, all right, we're going to send the U-20 team to this tournament. And the players realized that if that's what U.S. soccer is going to do, if they're just going to send youth players, we will never have any leverage. Um, so they started the sort of like phone tree type situation where senior players were calling all the players on the youth teams. Um, I think at the time it was, I want to say there was a U-20 team and then like a U-16 team. I, I don't remember the exact structure, but they essentially, the senior players called all of the youth teams had players and their parents on a big conference call and talked them through why everyone needs to decline a call-up for U.S. soccer. And the youth players, they could have pushed back on it and said, this is a big opportunity for me. I'm going to play for the senior national team. I'm going to get to go um, overseas and play in a tournament. But instead, there was absolutely no pushback. All the youth players were on board. They saw the bigger vision of what the team was fighting for. And that was the only reason that the players essentially won that dispute with U.S. soccer. And we've seen the players uh, unite in similar ways since then. And that actually turned into the blueprint for the USA women's hockey team. They did the exact same thing because... They went to Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm and those players and asked them, hey, how did you guys deal with U.S. soccer? How did you get what you did? And they kind of copied that blueprint. So for the players, it's 
it was always about the team as a whole. Uh, Mia Hamm was the biggest star of the team, but she always wanted to make sure the rest of the team was included in any sort of you know, benefits that she was getting. So that's really been um, sort of a defining characteristic of the team, and I think we still see that today. Yeah, the, se- the sense of unity, I think. Well, Caitlin, enjoy the World Cup. Thank you so much. Uh, your book is highly recommended. Uh, once again, if you haven't gotten a copy of Caitlin's book, you should. It's, of course, the national team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. And as we've outlined today, they changed soccer, not only the women's game in this country, but the women's game worldwide and uh, the sport of soccer for men, women, and youth uh, in this country with everything that they've accomplished through the years and, and, and of course, that 99 World Cup triumph, which we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of. Um, enjoy the World Cup again, uh, Caitlin. Neil will join me uh, this weekend to preview the U.S. in the Women's World Cup and also review the under-20s and the uh, CONCACAF Gold Cup roster and, and the friendly against Jamaica, which the U.S., of course, lost 1-0. So uh, stay tuned for that. Thank you for subscribing. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts via Anchor and other places where you get podcasts. So once again, thanks to Caitlin Murray for joining us. And I'm Carter Krishnar. Neil will be back with me uh, this weekend for another new edition of the Yanks Coming Soccer Show.